When you think about improving your writing in English, especially your business writing, you probably think about studying lots of rules and memorizing specific phrases and lots of complicated vocabulary. But recently I spoke to Ellen Joven, who's been writing professionally and teaching professionals how to write for more than 20 years. And in this interview, you'll discover that the secret to business writing isn't about language, it's about people. Ellen Joven, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Christian. I'm glad to be here. So uh, for people who don't know you, um, and that's very few people, especially in the uh, 50 contiguous states of the, uh, of the, of the United States, um, could you just uh, introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, I am half of a two-person communication skills training firm called Syntaxis. So I, in my normal daily life, I teach business writing, email etiquette, grammar to people who work for large organizations, companies, nonprofits, government organizations. And then in my, then I have a whole other life. I am, uh, I wander the country with my grammar table, um, which is just a table that I put a grammar table sign on. It says grammar table in big letters. And I answer, I set up on the street and I answer the grammar questions of people walking by. It's so, it's, it's such a cool thing. And you've been to uh, 47 states, is that right, in America? That's right, I'm missing three now. Mm. And and what gave you the idea to just put a table on the street and answer grammar questions? I like human beings. I'm on the computer too much, and I thought it would be nice to get out there and actually um, talk to real people um, about the same things I tend to talk about online. Uh, I, I often post on social media about grammar and language questions. Um, anything word related. And so I just wanted to take it to the streets. And so I tried it just on a on a pilot kind of basis, just tried it outside my apartment building. And it was instantly, instantly people came up. Apparently, a sign that says grammar is irresistible to the average human. Well, it's really interesting. Like, I'm curious, like what, what type of people would would actually go and ask you questions? Is it all, all types? All types, really? All types. I get everything. I'm reviewing footage now because we've, uh, my husband filmed all the encounters across 47 states. And it's reminding me of just how diverse the people are who come up. It can be anyone from someone who's a retired editor to um, someone who doesn't really speak English, you know, and they want to know how to improve their English. Or it could be an English speaker who wants to improve German. I mean, I, I do, you know, I deal with multiple languages. And, um, uh, it could be high school kids, college uh, kids, um, anyone who just wants to be, um, you know, to, to discuss something that's been bugging them. It could be about a semicolon or it could be about a word, uh, you know, like what's the past participle of such and such a verb? I, I, I can understand that probably some of these questions, both you and some of the other people feel quite passionately about the answers. I love it because it gives, it's sort of like, um, First of all, one thing that's fun about it is the element of surprise because people don't actually expect to see a table where someone's just sitting there answer, answering grammar questions. And I get a huge kick out of the surprise element, you know, because people are happy. Like when you see something that you don't expect walking down the street, it's kind of fun. It's not yeah. the same old thing, you know. Normally there's a bench there. Oh, today there's a table there with someone, you know, answering grammar questions. Oh, I can talk about the thing that... It's like, it's like they can talk about the thing they were just fighting about in their business meeting. And uh, I've actually, I, one guy once taped me answering him so he, could show it, you know, so he could show it to his boss. And I got a real kick out of that. That is awesome, actually. You, um, Ellen was the final word on that day about that particular question, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's such a, you know, so much power. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you stood on the street. Who knew? <laughs> so, um, obviously, one of the, the main reasons I wanted to talk to you uh, was because of your vast experience in, in business writing, which, you know, as I said to you, is an area which I'm basically completely ignorant. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk to you and, and learn some stuff today. But first, I wanted to, to talk a little bit more about some of the more 
theoretical aspects of business English. And the, the first thing I wanted to ask you was, do you think that business English actually exists? Because, obviously, um, business can take place um, in a bar, uh, it can take place on a construction site, it can take place uh, over, maybe, let's say, over email or Slack. So, you know, what is business English? That is a really good and smart question. I congratulate you on it. And I'm just buying time here by, <laughs> by paying you compliments. Um, no, I mean, I don't actually really use the term myself because for me, even in my writing classes, when I'm teaching business writing, I think about writing as a very broad activity that embraces all the ways we write to each other in the world. And um, although there are specific, there are content specific things that might affect the elements you focus on in business writing, and there might be some courtesies and formalities that shift things slightly. I think as a, as a writer, I feel it's very important just to find my natural, authentic voice. And then for, the, for workplace situations, just make sure it's polished and put together and organized as opposed to my normal you know, chaos. You know, that's, I, and I often think of business writing as being the job of the writer is to take the workplace environment, which is chaotic. You know, all kinds of things are going on. People are rushing around maybe, who knows what's happening. And their job as a good communicator is to express that in an orderly fashion for the person they're writing to or for. Um, so the skills that help you in writing a love letter effectively should still help you in communicating effectively in the workplace. Mm, really interesting. Um, be, because um, I'm wondering if you feel like, um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but I'm wondering if you feel like then maybe um, really good writing somehow manages to combine the technical aspects with maybe some some heart, you know, some emotion, more like poetry. Oh, I like that. I like that. And I also like how you clutched your heart at the moment that you said that. Um, <laughs> I actually want to elaborate on something that, on what you led me to in mm. the previous question. May I say one more thing about that? Yeah. I think the, the term business English can be a trap actually, because it makes people think that there's some perfect ideal way to express themselves in writing that is distinct from how they express themselves normally, whether in speech or other types of writing. And so, and so they get this kind of official, I got so excited just threw my pen on the floor. Oh, here's another one. Um, they, get, they, they get frozen in their voice and they take on this kind of artificial style. So they're excessively formal. They use terms they wouldn't normally use. They try to make it sound fancier and more sophisticated and it, it becomes very inauthentic. It no longer sounds like them. And I actually think that, that for me is one of the number, that's a top priority working with some people, not everyone does this, but a lot of people get this kind of frozen voice. And I think powerful writing is writing where you, especially in email correspondence or business letters, you want the sense that there is a human being present because we are all human beings talking to other human beings, even if we're talking about some, you know, fitting on a pipe that goes, I, all right, I'm already lost because I don't know anything about that stuff. But, you know, it could be very technical, but there's still a person reading what you're writing. Yeah, th I mean, that's, that's really interesting. So maybe one of the, the keys then is just being authentic. Yeah. Um, yeah, but... I think that's a form of, pa it's powerful to be authentic. If you can um, communicate with confidence that you're okay as the person you are, you know, here I am, I'm helping you understand something or I'm convincing you of something that's more effective than being paralyzed about how you normally communicate and adopting an artificial style. But, but what if you're, um, let, let's imagine that your kind of authentic self is, you know, a sailor who likes to go down to the bar and swears a lot. And, you know, um, where's that kind of balance between, uh, you know, being authentic and, uh, making language which is kind of appropriate for, you know, communication? I think it is important to do things in, in workplace writing that involve careful structure and, you know, maybe you get rid of some of the uh, 
what sh how shall I describe it? The saltier language. Uh -huh. <laughs> but but those are those are also those are technical skills that are part of the larger package. But they shouldn't be so overwhelming that they take away the the style of your communication. It's, I mean, this is a little bit you know it's a little bit confusing because I think some people do need work on just being professional in their writing. So it's, I come at it from two ways. Every once in a while, you know, sometimes I work with people who just really are, it's so chit chatty and slangy um, and their, their bosses may want me to um, help them take it up a, a level. But I think more often, at least in my environment, what I'm seeing is the overly official sounding voice and I'm trying to make it more natural. So I do come at it from both angles. And I think that's a great point. Well, wow, that, that's really that's really interesting that, well, it sort of goes back to what you said before, right? It's like when you read something, you want to feel like there's a human on the other side. Um, but I think most, most people, especially if you're learning English as a second language, you know, you kind of feel like there's this direct one-to-one -one relationship between formal writing, maybe like academic writing and business writing. So it's all about, it's not about being personal, it's about creating huge distance, um, but perhaps that's not true then in, 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 in your experience. Yeah, I think you can be totally formal and professional and still sound human. A lot of times it, it can, I'm very much in the details. So I look at sentences with people and take them apart and put them back together. And often it's really about a phrase, you know, that shows up. There might be a phrase that shows up too much right at the beginning of an email that's totally unnatural. Like really, you would never in a million years say it. You would feel like a weirdo saying it. And if you're using a lot of things like that, really moving, removing three of them from an email and just replacing them with more natural language can help a lot. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but maybe we can talk about some of those later. You know, I know that a strategy for a lot of learners and, and maybe even for, for, for native speakers, you know, when they're trying to learn about, um, you know, business writing, you know, this writing, they, they might try and memorize some of these kind of stock phrases, like introduce yourself in this way and, and say goodbye in this way. And, but it seems like maybe that's not a good idea or it comes across as kind of artificial. Yeah. Well, I've seen, I've actually seen books on business English that, present a list of these phrases. And the last one I looked at, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I spend half my time trying to get people who are native speakers to stop talking like this. So, you know, there's a difference between what you recognize and what you use. So I think it's good to be familiar with business jargon, the, the you know, sort of businessy, business speak kind of words that people use. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's what you want to replicate. And I think this is really tricky because it is important to know the it, it's important to know the lingo. Um, but just because you see someone who's a native speaker using it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most fantastic thing to put in your writing. Mm -hmm. So it's tricky. And I also see that when I study other languages too, I also see sometimes you know for workplace type stuff that they'll try to give me shovelfuls of this kind of language i don't take it away i don't want it uh, interesting well um i think probably for for anybody who's watching this who's who's a foreign learner who's been spending all their time with exactly these type of workbooks trying to memorize these kind of phrases i can imagine they'll feel a great deal of relief someone telling them well you need to be just yourself but a more polished version of, of yourself well, I hope that's the feeling as opposed to being irritated that they just spent <laughs> several weeks on them. I mean, it is, it's always good to, to recognize more vocabulary, but uh, I think if there are certain phrases that are really confusing, even after people have studied them for a while, it might be because the phrases are just plain old confusing for everyone. Um, I wanted to mention one thing, which I noticed a lot on, on social media, that people who are learners will often try to pick up, the, especially younger, We'll try to pick up the slang of native speakers. And that's something I do think on the other end of the, the style spectrum that people have to be very, very careful about. Because if it just if it doesn't sound, if that doesn't sound natural, 
that will that will look unprofessional. You know, if you're trying to be jazzy and cool and yeah, okay. Well, I mean, so maybe maybe both ends of the spectrum are dangerous, right? So taking the super informal stuff from Facebook is bad, and also maybe copying some of this this kind of business speak, like um, people talk about bandwidth and. 360 degree feedback and you know I mean are they both equally as as horrific um I guess there there are problems on both ends although oh my gosh bandwidth gets talked I mean I don't know I don't know if it's as popular now but that used to show up a lot you know do you have like for example do you have uh do you have time to meet at three tomorrow I'm sorry I don't have enough bandwidth <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I've never done that. I've never missed it either. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm surprised because, you know, New Yorkers are kind of, you know, on top of that kind of thing, right? It's, they're at the forefront of, of all of this linguistic change, you know? Well, while we're sitting here talking, probably emails are going out with all kinds of lingo, some of which I haven't learned yet, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll come across it later. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really interesting. Um, I suppose it's it's probably refreshing for people to hear that, you know, although your job is is teaching business writing, it doesn't mean that you need to be using all of the the, the really cool and and current terminology. Um, I think it's really for you know sometimes people think business writing is boring, and for me it is just part of the big human adventure where you are, and you're on one end a person or multiple people are on the other end and you are trying to get something across to them. And how do you do, how you do that? I mean, it's, you know, when I'm sitting on the street talking to people or whether I'm writing an email to a client or, you know, writing a note to a newspaper, whatever it is, there are always people on the other end and it's an adventure. It's exciting. Um, I think it's something people should, you know, feel if they're a little bit confused about how to approach someone, I think that, they should recognize that that's part of the adventure of being a human being. Um, and so I don't care if you're writing about, you know, the tickets for a corporate event. It's still interesting to think about how to make your point clear to the person on the other end, how to use words to do that. And it's this, it's this wonderful glue that holds us together as a society. So I love it. Bring on the business writing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I think anyone would be lucky to have you as a business writing teacher because I'm sure that the relationship that most people have with business writing is the opposite. They're like, oh my God, it's so boring and rigid and I have to exactly use my semicolon in the correct way, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I am fairly strict about the semicolon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine. Um, now, w one thing I wanted to ask you about, just one kind of final piece of of kind of theory. Um, I don't know if you've ever read this, this report. It was published by the EU. It's called Misused English Words and Expressions in EU Publications. That's very exciting. No, I haven't, I don't think I've seen that. I did get a boatload of stuff from the EU a couple of years ago. So I'm wondering if I might've just not so remembered. It was, it was written by a guy called Jeremy Gardner and Jeremy Gardner is very upset by the way that the EU officials uh, abuse the English language. And he gives some examples in the introduction. He says that, for example, they use uh, nouns as verbs when they shouldn't. They say things like planification. Uh, or they, uh, well, actually, that's a verb being used as a noun. Uh, and also they say, uh, an example of noun to verb would be they precise things. So they use precise as a verb. And, and basically it's like this 30-page uh, document outlining all of the ways that these EU kind of diplomats and, and um, politicians abuse English. But, and this is my question, since, since this group of people have kind of developed this, this language, which they all understand, which takes pieces from, you know, their own native languages and kind of, they've created this kind of special English, where, where, do, we, where do we say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be descriptivist, and say that that's okay because they all understand each other? Or where do we say, well, actually, they should probably fix those problems? So many things to talk about right now. <laughs> well, I, I, I haven't seen, you know, I don't know the, all the contents, but um, 
it did cause me some some pain in my soul to hear a couple of the examples that you read. And for the same reason I was talking about before, if I would never, if I wouldn't go to a cocktail party and talk that way, then it doesn't feel right to me to suddenly bring in all this new vocabulary. There, there are, we're always coining new words and I actually enjoy coin, coining new words. I do it for jokes sometimes, you know, in my posts. Um, I probably irritate people a little bit. So I'm not, I'm not opposed to new words. We have to have new words come into our vocabulary. I'm not sure that precise things, you know, that here's what happens. That's not part of the general human way of using language. So what happens then is you get all these people coming into an organization who are new to it and they see that and their reaction is what? you know, what's happening here. So they get used to it and then they start doing it. And then a whole new generation of people come in. And in general, um, what I, what I recommend for people coming into an organization where they see all this vocabulary, cause it's going to happen is that you consider whether you want to be the person who recognizes it or the person who recognizes it and uses as much of it as you possibly can. I don't recommend the second option. I remember, I recognize, I recommend being more of a person who recognizes it, but definitely keeps its use to a minimum because it's just going to be easier for, like I write so that someone could pick the page up off a table and say, oh yeah, I understand most of it. I might not know the, you know, the specific noun that she's talking about, but that's what I, that's what I sound like. <laughs> yeah. So again, it's, it's about being authentic and maybe not being influenced by, you know, the people in whatever company or organization you, you, you're working at? Being influenced, but not being overly influenced because, you know, the senior people in any organization, you may have leaders who are really excellent writers. You know, that may be part of the skill that catapulted them or led them to climb gradually up to the senior position. But a lot of people who are senior um, leaders are not, that's not necessarily their focus. So they may be really good at what they do, but they may not be the most amazing writers. So I recommend when people want to write better, that they look to professional writers who do that as a living. So uh, an example of dynamic writing, examples of dynamic writing, good writing can be found in good journalism. It's not business writing, but it shows you what good writing can be. If you want to write better, I wouldn't take like a, a government document and study it on your you know, spring vacation. It's just not probably, in most cases, not going to be the best model. Well, well, actually, that, that kind of is a perfect segue into the kind of second part of what I want to talk about, which is more of the practical side. So um, there's been lots of, there's lots of advice out there about the secret to good writing. And I wanted to ask you about a few of them. And normally the number one piece of advice that people say, you know, if you want to be a better writer, you should read more because read good uh, lots of reading equals better writing. Do you agree with that? I think so. I I think sometimes people's idea of reading more isn't necessarily <laughs> totally uh, in sync with mine. I think reading high quality writing and it you know it doesn't have to be written. You know, you have to pick things that appeal to you and that are written at a level that's appropriate to you. For example, in studying other languages have sometimes tried to read literature that was maybe a step too high. Okay. You know, the level was a tiny bit too high and it is so exhausting. I mean, perhaps you've had this experience, but I, I remember reading German novels and looking up every, you know, like a million words. <laughs> yes, I, don't think they were um, necessarily, I don't think they were necessarily the wrong level, but it's just, ex it's exhausting. And things that you don't enjoy doing you're not going to keep doing them. That's just how human nature is. So um, I really believe in, um, I sometimes describe myself as a language hedonist, someone who, you know, I'm motivated by, a hedonist is someone who's, you know, motivated by pleasure. I, I think what I'm good at is figuring out what I enjoy and pursuing that in my language skill improvement work. So pick something, you know, if you if you're interested in, technical aspects of cycling, then, you know, read about that. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be right in your subject area to see what good writing is. Get the best magazine on the technical aspects of cycling. I don't know what I'm talking about now, but anyway. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm, 
<laughs> I sort of, oh, so I do believe, I do believe in it, but I think also for most people, most people require instruction in specific elements of writing because just picking it up by looking at it isn't usually enough. So mm. in school, you, you know, the ideal is you read a lot. You also get trained in things like how to get to the point quickly, um, how to write clean, elegant sentences. Um, and that's a skill that takes some work usually. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you said, you said a few interesting things there and I'm wondering like if for, for the, for somebody who wants to absorb a more kind of general English, like nothing specific, like cycling or whatever, where, where, where do you think they can find, you know, in general, where can they find good quality writing to read? Well, Is it I mean, I would read, I would read something like in English, I would read something like the New York times in the United States. Okay. That's an appropriate level. I think you're going to get a lot of um, good vocabulary there. So good newspaper. Um, Good magazines as well, but I think sometimes, like I read The New Yorker, I, I have found that even for native speakers who don't really like to read, that is sometimes pitched at a higher level than they enjoy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to be committed to some uh, to your sentences because they can go they can go on for a while. Ooh. I think it's very beautiful, but not everyone, not everyone <laughs> enjoys that. So um, yeah, or a good newspaper in whatever whatever country they're doing, you know, they're targeting for work or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Um, another, another piece of advice that's really common um, when people want to improve their writing is they, and, and this is a quote that's been attributed to various people throughout history, but probably no one actually said it. Uh, they said, if you want to be a good writer, you need to just sit down at the typewriter and bleed. What do, what do you think about that? Wow, I haven't heard the blood. That sounds very bloody. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, the, the most. It's mostly attributed to Ernest Hemingway, but he probably didn't say it. So. Yeah, I mean, I, people who are really amazing writers sometimes have trouble teaching writing. You know, there's a difference between being a good writer and teaching it. And I think um, there are people who have worked very, very hard to get to their skill level who don't necessarily know how to share that with other people. So it's more than that, but I do think writing, I have, uh, if I'm gonna use the language of that quote, I've bled a lot over the years. Right. I mean, I kept, one of the things that helped me tremendously in, as a writer and in connecting me to the process of writing as a, as a kid, I was forced to keep a journal for my 10th grade English class. So it kind of cracks me up because all these 14, 15 year old girls were handing over journals to this middle-aged male English teacher. That's what, which is a little bit weird, um, but it connected me to the process of writing and it got me to enjoy it because I was writing about myself, which is always a wonderful topic for any teenager themselves, you know, talk about themselves. And it just, I had to write X number of pages each week. And I, and I think for people who never write, that could be helpful. I don't do it anymore. So I don't really think about it as a thing, but if I were a young person and I went and I just wanted to feel connected to it. It could be good as a way to tap into fluency in English. I mean, I um, am writing well in it. I do in other languages, if I study other languages, I compose sentences in my head. Like I'll walk around and I'll, I'll try to say things to myself in my head. So it's my, I guess it's my modern equivalent of writing and just getting practice in, oh, this is what I want to say. Can I say it in Italian? Let me try. Mm, interesting. Well, I think I think that the sit down and bleed um, is is kind of basically you know a, a call to quantity over quality. But I'm interested more about what you said before: is that um, you know it's there's no point producing a lot of quantity if if you're not kind of focusing on technique or you don't have someone to to help you with technique. Uh, they're different. People write differently and produce writing differently. And one of the things that I found helpful as a teacher is to help is to tell people that part of being a good writer is knowing your own your own best methods. For example, um, I used to work as a freelance reporter, and I would have to hand in a lot of articles that were a thousand words, fifteen hundred words, sometimes longer. And um, there are writers who will just produce sentence by sentence fairly slowly, you know, and care. And so the sentences, the first draft comes out and it looks kind of good. Mm -hmm. 
and then they tidy it up and reorganize whatever. I produce a nightmare. Like it is a complete nightmare. I produce 10 times more than I need. I cut and paste into this giant document. It looks like my cat just threw up on the carpet or what, I don't have a cat, but if I did, it's that kind of quality. Like I could never show it to an editor or a client because it's a, it's junk. And one of the things that for me has been useful as a writer is accepting that that is my process to make a mess and then really spend way, way, way more time tidying up um, than some people do, but I produce faster. So I produce junk faster and then I tidy over a longer period of time, but just, I have to, it's like an OCD thing, like an obsessive compulsive kind of thing. I have to consider everything and then reject it one at a time to feel at peace. So if I were writing, say, an email or, well, e email is a bad example now because I've written so many that I actually do write them in a fairly orderly fashion. But if it were a proposal, like everything in the kitchen sink and the refrigerator and the bathtub go into the document, and then I pull things out until I'm left with the, the ideal. So you have to, first of all, quantity for some people, like me, has value. You just have to cut it down before you impose your nightmare vision on someone else yeah so um just just to, to that point so um so again it's kind of about being authentic to yourself and and so maybe there's not exactly one right way to to write then well i think some write some writing instructors do teach that there is one right way they have a system they give it to you and you're supposed to follow it i i worry about that kind of thing because i really do feel like um, individual differences are huge in, in writing and communication. And um, so it requires self, my way of thinking about it requires self-awareness. You have to understand how you operate as a human being. Mm -hmm. But for someone like me, I get really bogged down in details. And for me, sifting out the structure takes a very long, that takes longer like my husband and business partner, he comes up with the structure more easily and then fleshes it out. I just can't do it that way. Mm. So, um, yes, I guess my answer, my long answer to your question is, yeah, there, there are multiple ways. And I think knowing yourself mm. um, is the key. Okay. So, um, so, so what about studying some of the classical techniques? What, what do you think about that? I actually, in my classes, do cover some aspects of sentence structure because one of the things that gets in the way of good business writing is um, people rely, they get, they get uncomfortable with certain sentence types because they don't know, maybe because they don't know how to punctuate them. I mean, it can really be something very trivial or they think they were taught when they were 11 that they shouldn't begin a sentence with this word. So they never begin that way. And then they cut out a huge array of possibilities for how they arrange their ideas and it gets very monotonous. So I find people get addicted to their favorite sentence structure and don't diversify enough, which is why I think it is good to read good writing, like you know, a good journalist with awareness of how they're putting sentences together so you can expand your repertoire. So, so obviously you've seen some of these kind of myths that unfortunately have been kind of perpetuated for the last 50 or 100 years in classrooms all over the world, like, you know, don't split your infinitives and don't start a sentence with and, and I mean, is that, is that, you think that's quite a barrier in the people that you, you see sometimes? Well, I, I don't want to overstate the barrier. I think it is sometimes a barrier. The split infinitives, those are one, although I find in the United States, at least, um, I don't think native speakers are really often that aware anymore <laughs> of what an infinitive is. So, yeah, okay. so they don't end up, so they split them or they don't, they're not really that worried about it, which kind of leads to a reasonable outcome because if you're, so I, you know, I split infinitives, although I do it with care because the problem with an, Amer an educated American audience, especially people my generation or older, they often still really won't split an infinitive. So if you split an infinitive with them, then those are the people that come up to the grammar table on the street and they complain to me that people are splitting their infinitives. And I'm kind of like, that's really the least of my concerns. <laughs> um, ending with a preposition is a big one in, you know, for also that people worry about ending with a preposition, mm -hmm. even though they do it all the time in English. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't, I don't think, and I sometimes, I, I sometimes, that's why I have books on the grammar table when I'm sitting on the street, 
I have all these books so I can pull out examples and say, look, everyone is fine with it. It's time to let that one go. The big one in the US, and you didn't mention it, yeah. So I'm wondering yeah. if it, I, I kind of feel like this is U.S. specific, but I really don't know. So you can tell me some a huge percent of Americans think they can't begin a sentence with because. Yeah, um, I've heard that, but it's kind of similar to you. It's been it's been many years since I've been around kind of monolingual uh, English native speakers. So I haven't had that kind of discussion for a long time, but I've you know I've seen it around, so I'm sure that it's is a worldwide problem. This because business. you are I kind of I I sometimes have the feeling it's more here, but I'm not sure. Mm. But I do find that that is also that also sometimes gets into um, the instruction that non-native speakers have had. So it's not only native oh, yeah. speakers. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's sometimes non-native speakers who also have that false impression, um, although non-native speakers from certain language backgrounds are very unlikely to have been taught that like they you know they'll they'll be fine with it so it depends on what the where the non-native speaker has learned their english mm. but again you know your answer kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning so it's about understanding that there's a human at the other end and maybe so it's about adapting your message for the audience so you know, if you are writing for an American audience, you want to write in a way that, you know, they, they are more comfortable with. And if you're writing for, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe for some of these EU bureaucrats, you want to adapt your language to them. And, and also, and this is another question I have is, um, obviously now in, in the modern business world, you have all these different communication channels, like you've got Twitter and Slack and email um, and maybe even, you know, people inside companies are talking to each other in, on WhatsApp and they're not going to be the same type of language on, on, on all of those platforms, right? Right. Um, one thing some of my clients are concerned about, though, is that um, these communications can, you still have to be careful because these communications can be discoverable later in cases of litigation. You want to just be sure that what you're sending flying around represents you, represents the company well. So I, I still would be careful, but the style is probably a little different in the chat functions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your new book because you've got a new book about business writing, right? I do. Um, sh show it to us. Okay. Well, actually, I have, I have two books that are meant for business English, if you want it. But this is the, the book for um, business writing. Can okay. you see it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wrote this in my very detail-oriented kind of style. So I have tons of examples in here, like emails before and after emails. You know, it's sort of like, you know, like the um, a makeover show. Hmm. Like where you make over someone's home or their style of dress, make over your email. <laughs> I think what, what I love about that book is it's small size because um, it's not intimidating at all. How many pages yeah, compared is it? To, compared to my head. <laughs> well, well, actually, it would be great if you don't mind. It would be great if you could actually maybe give a couple of examples, like either from the book or just from, you know, that you invent right now, just so people can get an idea of maybe how they can transform something that's mediocre into something amazing, like the makeover <laughs> shows. Like the makeover shows. Well, one thing that um, people ask about a ton is just how to open their email. I find it so interesting, just this way of how do you open your email? Do you say, dear? Do you say, hi? Do you say, hello? And Americans in particular are known for being fairly casual. Okay. Um, so it's sometimes confusing. I've noticed when people communicate internationally, I get these questions in my writing classes a lot. So they see you know, people writing, hey, like, hey, <laughs> Josephine. And then do you write back, if someone, let's say someone writes to you, hey, Josephine, do you write back Hey, Ellen. Well, actually, that's a bad example because I never write hey to anyone. 
I think that's too informal for email, um, at least for the kind of writing I have to do. It's all very, it all depends on your context. I mean, if it's your coworker, maybe sometimes, but in general, emails get, they get saved for all eternity, they get passed on. So I try to have how I approach people be appropriate for that person mm -hmm. in that moment. But then also if it were forwarded, I want it to be uh, as, you know, the kind of writing that won't embarrass me, you know, I don't want it to be embarrassing. So I think it's perfectly fine for people who are used to a more formal style to stay parked in their slightly more formal zone. Um, Americans sometimes tell me that they get a lot of emails that begin with dear from people overseas, but it's really uncommon in the US if you're writing some, uh, with, with a few exceptions, if you're writing within a company, you don't usually see dear Mary, I'm looking forward to our meeting at four. It's more often hi Mary or something like that, mm. you know? So there's something, well, I was just kind of thinking about, about what you said about how emails are actually kind of permanent and there's a record of them and and so you're not just thinking about what you're writing in the moment you're thinking about like you said maybe in five years when it gets forwarded um that's a consideration that i never never entered my mind at all well it's one of the things that happens sometimes when two let's say two co-workers are writing to each other really quickly it's you know it's 11 o'clock at night and they're working really hard on a project that's due the next day and one sends to the other a question with no capital letters no punctuation misspelling sends them a message um sends the other person a message asking for some piece of information that that person doesn't have that person might then send it on. Now, I don't think that person should send it on. If they're both on the same deadline and they're working really hard at 11 o'clock at night, that person shouldn't just forward this thing to like three hierarchies up the corporate ladder. And that just isn't like a thing to do. But I still, I write my email so it could be forwarded. It's just safer. Um, but I also don't want what I, people worry so much about what they write. I don't want them to leave this segment even more worried, like don't write slang, don't be too formal. Remember your email will be safe for 5 billion years. Just relax and just make sure, you know, it sounds, it's it's not a complete, you know, you don't have dancing penguins in there or something. It just needs to look fairly professional. Um, so anyway, I just find the salutation interesting because it sets the tone of email. Mm. I am perfectly comfortable with the idea that people can stick to their slightly more formal styles of communication, like Americans are used to that if they're communicating with other countries. So just because you see an American write, hey, doesn't mean that that's what you want to start doing. I wouldn't do it. And, and what about some examples? Because I mean, you've said quite a few times now, and that's been my, my limited experience with you is that you're very detail oriented. <laughs> and um, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> that, that's another one, right? People, I'm sure that's a question you have at the grammar table. Is it oriented or orientated? Hmm. Oh, people are really obsessed with that one. <laughs> I mean, it just depends on where you're sitting. If you're in the UK, then orientate. And if you're orient, like, what? It's just two letters. Chill out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I, um, I, I, I enjoy those differences uh, from, re you know, regional Englishes, the differences. While I, I'm sure, you know, in the UK, they might not necessarily call it describe this regional it would be more like the english i actually had someone the other day say to say about me um ellen doesn't speak english she speaks american <laughs> and i and i thought oh wow okay the prejudice I mean, runs deep with that one <laughs> wow okay yeah it is actually called english and we i think you and i are communicating pretty well well that's the thing <laughs> what what is it Oh, because neither, well, we're both sitting in different parts of the world here. <laughs> no, but I love, I mean, I, I, in general, I love pointing out to British people that um, most of the things that they dislike about American English, like the way that they say fall instead of autumn, things like that, are actually the original forms of British English. Yeah. And so that if, if they want to be funny about it, they, they, you could say that the Americans speak better English than the British. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> one, thing, one thing I almost got out of um, bed in the middle of the night to tweet this, and I restrained myself so that I didn't, but um, I wanted to tweet that 
um, one thing that I really do like about British English is the spelling for the I, I Z E, you know, our uh, I Z E words in American English. I much prefer the I S E ending. So my dream, I would love to be able to write realize with an S in that last syllable. But what do you just like? You like the visual look of it. I do. I think it looks so much nicer. The I Z E looks so crass and also um people use it to create people use it to create new verbs like you know incentivize uh-huh. i don't yes. know i guess they would do the same thing with the ise it must happen in the eu all the time yeah but... yeah uh what was uh was there another yeah uh well precise maybe well, that's how they right. pronounce that, it i don't know that one is really you really shocked me with that one you asked for an example so i want to give you a before and after sentence a made a made over sentence awesome. um and before I give it to you, I just want to give a little a warning. Okay. I do find like you could it's possible that one of your followers could find that that they work in an environment where people want them to do the kind of sentence I'm about to make over. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the challenge. You could be stuck with some, you know, you could be stuck working for someone who believes this is a better way to communicate. I do not, and I'm going to tell you my opinion now, but you always have to negotiate the opinions of others, especially if you report to them. So um, I apologize in advance for any pain and suffering you may experience (laughs) with your manager and your manager's opinions about writing. All right, so here is a sentence that has gone out all over New York City where I am sitting probably, you know, hundreds of times just in our brief little chat here um something like the following uh hi sam okay so it begins casually a lot of new yorkers begin their emails with hi hi sam comma and then drop down a line you know blank space beginning paragraph as per your request please find attached the marks analysis this is this is this is this is too close to the bone, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> In what way? What what has happened to you? Tell me about your trauma. No, no. I I mean that 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 sounds exactly like an email that I would write. I would write those exact words. Really? Yep. And you and tell me, how does it make you feel when you do that? Um, I think um, because I have the awareness of of what I do as a, as you know as a, as a teacher. I'm aware enough to realize that I'm just basically regurgitating these two kind of chunks. And I'm doing that because, you know, I got taught and I've been accustomed to believe that they're the correct things to say in that context. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that most people, even if you ask them, would have no idea why they wrote that. <laughs> it's really funny. To me, it's really funny anyway. <laughs> um, in my classes, I... So I'll have, you know, I teach usually small groups of up to 12. That's the most common situation. So we'll be around a conference table and I will say, I will say to them, okay, if you, if you, um, can you imagine yourself ever walking up to someone and I actually walk up to some poor unsuspecting person. Can you imagine yourself walking up to someone and saying, please find attached, um, no, let me do the whole thing. As per your request, please find attached the marks analysis. And they all start giggling. Like they laugh every single time. It is, it's the best business writing class joke. Um, because then it highlights how, how absurd it is. So the please find attached and please find enclosed have been in business correspondence forever. People have used them forever. The please find enclosed was what you saw in the letters, although sometimes you saw please find attached there, I think, as well. Emails typically please find attached because it's not, there's no enclosure, it's an attachment now. Yeah. And um, it, it's kind of a funny expression. If you think about it, it's imploring you're begging the reader to go search for this thing. Please find it. No, it's just sitting there. So just say that. So I have two options that I use, and these will solve other business writing problems that people have. So I say either I have attached. I sometimes even begin with a contraction. I'll say I've attached, and that horrifies some students who've been told never use contractions, which I think is very weird advice for email, you're emailing all day long. We speak in contractions. Why should we pretend 
There's not, for me, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, maybe I use fewer contractions in formal reports. I'm, I'm not even sure that's true, but mm. perhaps. Um, so anyway, uh, I have attached or I've attached the marks analysis. And then as for the as per your request or per your request, which sounds like you're about to sue someone in court, um, I just say as you requested. So I end up with something like as you requested, I have attached the marks analysis. So let me do the before and the after together so you can hear the difference. Um, Hi, Christian, or dear Christian, as per your request, please find attached the marks analysis versus dear Christian, hi, Christian, as you requested, I have attached the marks analysis. It's just um, so much more direct, um, you know, to the point and and i think uh and and i think for for those students who've maybe struggled to kind of understand that kind of weird you know as per it's kind of latin you know it's kind of for people who've struggled with that to be able to just well to be given the permission to use simple language i think is a, is a relief right good i that's what i want for people and also sometimes my students will say to me, everyone uses that, they expect it, and so on. Mm. No. I mean, no one is, <laughs> no one is, well, all right, I, I, I shouldn't make such an extreme commitment because I don't want someone coming back and saying, Ellen, I work for this one person. <laughs> no, but generally, people don't come back and say, you did not have enough attached please finds, <laughs> you know, attached please finds in your document. You need more of them. They don't say that. I used to write as a freelancer. I did tons of writing about um, financial technology, which is an area that is full of jargon, you know, really confusing terms. And then on top of all the business speak. And I would write about it as simply as I could. I've produced these articles, white papers, things like that for clients. And no one ever said to me, you do not have enough business jargon. No one misses it when it's gone. That's really the thing I think that I, I want people to know. And then, um, oh, this solves another problem that's really common. If you get rid of the please find attached thing, then you no longer end up, a lot of emails are three sentences. You know, it's just, you know, please find attached the blah, blah, blah. It will tell you about blah, blah, blah please let me know if you have any questions. Then you end up with please in the first sentence, please in the third sentence. And then what a lot of my students have told me they do, they keep the first one and get rid of the, the one at the end. So it's please find attached. You want to hang yourself by the time you get to the end of the phrase because it's like, what does that mean? And then there's then at the end, they get rid of that please. And instead of saying, please let me know if you have any questions, it says, let me know if you have any questions, which sounds kind of unfriendly. It's a little bit harsh. So I'd rather keep that, please, and get rid of the first one. And now I no longer have this overlap of the same words over and over. Um, and you can also, if you have too many sentences that begin with I, because that happens to people a lot too, you can always say attached is, you know, okay. your invoice. <laughs> attached is your invoice. Pay me now. No, don't do it that way. Attached, <laughs> attached is the June invoice as well as blah, blah, blah. I'd be glad to answer any questions. Wow. And you sound friendly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, but, you know, maybe, like you say, like maybe if you're, if you've been conditioned to believe that, that, that if, if you write in that way, that you're not using business English, you know, you're just, people are going to think you're unprofessional. I can imagine that's quite a scary, you know, I don't know, maybe people would be afraid to, to make these changes because they'll be worried about, I don't know, not getting the job interview or, or you know, people thinking they're, they're being too informal, you know, is that, is, that, is that not a problem? I find that question very interesting because what I do the most work in is this kind of writing where you're writing for your life. And I don't mean to make that sound like, you know, scary, like you'll die if you don't do it right. It's not, that's not what I mean, but workplace writing is the writing that you do that produces your income. You know, you, it is attached to the thing you do that helps you make a living, get food, pay for your home, that kind of thing. And so there's, there are stakes, you know, for some people, it may, they may feel scarier than others. Mm. And um, in that case, I don't want to cause stress for people. 
but I do want at least, I, I try to leave people with ideas that will help them when they're at a crossroads in a sentence, you know, you could go left, you could go right. Maybe in that one sentence, you try something that feels a little different from what you've been doing before. You see how it goes, you see how it feels. You don't have to be tr you know, dramatic in the transformation. Try it and see if you write that sentence, that one thing a little bit differently, and there are no consequences except good ones. You know, maybe someone says, hey, that was a great email. Then you start to think, okay, I'm ready to change that second sentence now. And then it, it takes you on a path where you can maybe feel more confident. This is also, I think, a professional experience thing. Mm -hmm. I feel more comfortable at, with each passing year with my own voice. I think it takes a while to develop that in writing. But um, I want to put out another idea that I think people should think about. If you work in an organization with 100 people, um, there may be something that 40 of them do in writing, you know, like a phrase, a type of sentence, the please find attached as per your request kind of stuff. 40 of them may do that. The person who is the senior vice president of corporate communications may be one person who doesn't do it. And try, when you're developing your business style, don't necessarily assume that the majority is the best option. Try to think about whose email you enjoy getting, whose email you think when you read it, wow, that is really great, it speaks to me. It's different from the other 40 people who are all recycling the same phrases and it's kind of hard to understand. That one person is really good. And use that, you have to pick your models really, really carefully. And that's tricky, but it's usually not what the majority do. It's usually what an excellent minority of the company or organization does. Mm. Well, actually, it's it's similar advice to um, to what um, accent coaches and pronunciation coaches do uh, with with students. They they say you know you can't uh, study an American accent. You pick one person and you copy them. You imitate them. Mm -hmm. So maybe having like a kind of role model for the way you want to communicate. Maybe that's a good idea. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And often it will be someone who sounds maybe a tiny bit different. Mm. Usually, I think that there's a point that I want to make here, which is just that um, in the shift, especially for younger people who are leaving a university environment um, or school environment and going into the workplace, that I think that one of the tougher adjustments is remembering that longer and more complicated is not better. In business people, I mean, especially this is true in American cult business culture, people are like, very fast. So simpler, cleaner, shorter, and I don't mean so short that you don't say what you need to say. I mean, you, if, if you write a really good two-page report and then you look at that and you say, oh, I think that's just not long enough. You know, like when your professor said you should write five pages on the following topic. So you added a lot of um, words and made the margins bigger, maybe changed half the active voice to passive voice because it adds on average two words per sentence. So longer and more complicated does not win prizes. It's, there's no award for this is the most hard, difficult to understand business report of the year simple and clean, where instead of people focusing on the words, they're just going straight through to the ideas, that's often the goal. And um, it's something that people undervalue. You know, they look at something complicated, they don't understand it, and they think it must be really good. Try not to give in to that. Hmm. Uh, I, I totally agree. Um, and and I, think, I think that kind of goes for all, all communication in general. You know, um, it, it's weird, but... You know, I spend all of my life, uh, you know, dealing with language and vocabulary and and but I'm I'm not impressed at all by flowery language anymore. It's it's yeah. kind of, you know, I'm much more impressed by people who can just communicate in a way that I can understand. I do love beautiful literary writing. So literary fiction or nonfiction, mm. there can be really beautiful sentences that take you down. A, you know, I, I can, I could go down a long path with a long sentence, but in general, that's not what you're going for in a business setting. You can have very beautiful writing, even in a business setting, even about something very technical. I still argue it can be beautiful and enjoyable to read. And that's my, I want people 
when they see something from me to take pleasure in reading it. That's the goal. Like not to show, not to show them that you're really, um, that you know a whole lot. It's not like here, I'm going to impress you with my big vocabulary and my long report. It's more, I'm going to share with you something that you need. Um, so it's very audience focused. You've also, apart from the book that we talked about, you've also written some other books, right? So it's like a series. I've written, I've written two other books, sort of three. Okay. Do, do, you, <laughs> so, do you have copies? Okay. By coincidence, I have a copy. Oh, and it matches my outfit today, which is even better. So this book I wrote, um, it's a self-study. It's designed to be a self-study course for people using English in the workplace or who want to improve English so they can use it in the workplace. It's meant for, it's called English at Work, Find and Fix Your Mistakes in Business English. And it's a series of uh, daily quizzes. So short quizzes, 10, 10 sentences at a time where I have just collected over a period of years, common mistakes that I see in workplace settings, in the classes, you know, in the companies I work with now. Um, for example, um, common mistakes. And then the idea is that you go through the sentence, you fix the problem. And then if you get it right, you don't have to read anything. You don't have to read anything about any grammar. You, you just move on to the next question. If you get it wrong, then there's a brief example explaining the underlying concept. So it's meant to give the grammar explanations and the word choice, not just grammar, but also word choice kinds of things, explanations, idioms, um, explanations to the people who need them while not dumping more than they want on them. Because I find that a lot of my students, I don't understand this, but they just don't want to spend their days reading books about grammar and business English. They don't want to. So I tried to make it minimally difficult. I also have a book um, called Essential Grammar for Business. This is meant for native and non-native speakers. So it's just a book that covers some of the basics of writing and sentence structure for workplace English. And it serves as a complement to the book I showed you before. Writing for Business. And, and these are all available, obviously, as eBooks as well. They are all available for eBooks. And there have been sales recently. I don't know how much they'll, they'll continue for this month. They might. And they... Um, the discount seems to vary globally, okay. but right okay. now they are inexpensive in certain places. <laughs> well, um, I think if, if, if it helps people to improve their writing, then, wow, this sounds like a really cheesy sales pitch, but how can you put a price on that? How can you put a price on good writing, Ellen? You know what? I actually, okay, I even have an answer to that. <laughs> even though maybe you didn't intend for there to be one. I didn't, but I go, think, go with it. I love it. <laughs> I think um, taking a closer look at the words that bind us to other human beings, contemplating what they mean, how they use them, what they mean to you, what they mean to others who might think and be different, think differently from you and be different from you. Um, I think that is an incredibly rewarding activity. And it's why I just love looking more closely at words in all areas of our lives. It can be a very rewarding um, experience, both personally and professionally. Well, I have to be honest, I did not expect our conversation to be like this. I you know, had in my mind that a conversation about business writing was going to be one thing that was going to involve a lot of kind of rules and it was going to be more, I don't know. I'm going to be honest. I, I thought maybe it was going to be kind of tough going, but I'm, I'm so shocked and pleasantly surprised, honestly, to discover that, um, you know, good business writing is so much more about, um, all of the other, all of the other things that excite me about language, about effective communication, about treating people as individuals. And so, um, personally, I feel amazing after this interview. So thank you. You feel amazing. That's great. I like it. It's like, um, it's like lingua therapy. <laughs> it is, it is. And, um, j just, just before we go, um, because obviously I'm also, apart from being an amazing business writing coach, you're also one of the greatest ever living polyglots, according to Wikipedia. Oh no, gosh. 
no, no. But, but I have do. studied. I have. I love language study, and behind me right now is my language learning bookshelf. Um, Very impressive. Or, or I'll say bookshelves, alphabetized from Albanian to Zulu, neither of which I've actually studied. I haven't studied the two languages that bookend my bookcases, but I have studied 25 plus languages in, in my my in school. I studied German in, at, at university, and uh, I really love um, I love the mystery of you know of discovering a new language. Wow. So given all of your experience in, in language learning, just as one final thing, what would be your kind of um, number one tip to anybody who's trying to learn English right now? And, and maybe especially if they're struggling, you know, they're like, they're not enjoying it. They're in class. They hate class. You know, what, what advice do you have? Um, I, one, of, one of my um, paths to, I think, successful language acquisition is... Um, not relying too heavily on just one thing because I think that can be a bummer. <laughs> that's my that's my technical assessment. But what happens sometimes if I have a if I have a book to study a language and I get to a point I'm on my own, you know, I'm studying on my own, not in a class. Um, I get I get to a point where I get frustrated. I get frustrated. I get frustrated easily, and I'm a very impatient person. But then I just switch. This is what I think I'm good at. I switch to something that is more fun for me. So if I'm using a grammar book, I might switch to a TV show. If I'm getting frustrated because the TV show is too advanced, I work on vocabulary. So it goes back to this idea of pleasure. Figure out what in the moment will be enjoyable to you that will be pitched at a level that is not too, not too advanced so you get frustrated. And just when, you know, variety, you know what they say about variety, it's the spice of life. And that that's what I try to bring into my life, a multimedia, multi-sensory language learning experience. Wow, um, I think that's solid advice. Um, so uh, Ellen Joven, uh, I, I honestly had, had a great time. I think it's one of the most fun interviews I've had. Um, you made me laugh a lot. Uh, so, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure, Christian. And, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad to talk to you anymore because any, let me just say that sentence again. I'm glad to talk to you anytime because you, um, I think, bring fun to this undertaking. And, and that is kind of the key to learning success and joy.